Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart. And this show is most definitely all about the heart. When we talk about happiness, we're really talking about living the good life, living, living a life of meaning. And research has borne out that there are certain strengths or characteristics of happy people. And some of those, there are actually 24 of these values and actions. They include truth and honesty. And that is what we are exploring today. Truth or denial, why honesty matters and why it's worth fighting for. My first guest is Sean Otto. He is an award-winning science advocate, writer, teacher, and speaker. He is the author of the critically acclaimed book, The War on Science, the co-founder of sciencedebate.org, and the producer of the U.S. Presidential Science Debates, for which he received the IEEE USA's National Distinguished Public Service Award. He has advised science debate efforts in several countries. He is also a novelist and filmmaker. His novel, Sins of Our Fathers, a literary thriller, was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and his film, House of Sand and Fog, was nominated for three Academy Awards. He lives in Minnesota with his wife and family. He also built with his hands a wind-powered green solar home. And I am so happy to have Sean Otto in the house with me today. Hi, Sean. Hey, how are you? I am great and really delighted um, to to be here with you because I think you offer a, a, a spin on the theme of of truth and honesty that that taps into integrity and why we need to fight for truth. Absolutely. Well, the integrity piece is really critical to my work with science debate. And I think that that really ties into what you talk about with uh, 
with integrity and authenticity and happiness. Yes, indeed. Indeed. Talk a little bit about your latest book. I have it on my desk and I, I think this is a home run. I think that this book is going to open a lot of hearts and minds to why we need to talk about denial and by denial. I mean, the old cliche, it's not a river in Egypt. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, the whole idea of democracy, which is um, to give us all the ability to govern ourselves, was based on the thinking of science and that if anyone can discover the truth of something for him or herself using the tools of science and reason, then no king, no pope, no wealthy lord, in other words, no authoritarian, was more entitled to rule us than we were ourselves. So the idea of democracy was based on this idea of evidence. And that's where truth comes in, because if we can discover those truths for ourselves, that's an anti-authoritarian form of government that relies on the judgment and wisdom and authenticity of each of us as individuals. Why is there a war on science? You know, what, what is going on? Well, it comes from three different angles, and it is built on some problems in the way that the media uh, journalism approaches ideas of truth. Um, and we can talk about both of those elements of it. The three angles that I go over in the book are the uh, identity politics war in science, the ideological war in science, and the industrial war in science. And each of those different aspects have their own motivations for denying what the evidence from science suggests. And they take advantage of certain misconceptions that many journalists have have that we've seen come out particularly in this campaign where we're hearing a lot about uh, post-fact politics uh, and uh, we see a lot more move towards fact-checking than we have in the past. You, you make a good point about fact-checking being um, used quite regular, regularly and vigorously in this election. And, you know, I want to tap into another hat that you wear, and that is of storyteller and screenwriter, because really what I hear you saying by these three components, it's about story crafting. There's a lot of story crafting going on. Oh, it is, absolutely. And generally when you think about it, if somebody is going to mount a campaign to deny science or to attack science, um, they're going to use a narrative to try to confuse people. And it's because they don't like what the evidence is saying about their vested interests. Science is never partisan, but it's always political because it either confirms or challenges somebody's cherished beliefs or cherished economic position. What can we as individuals, um, both as adults and, and, and how we help our children see the world in, from an inquisitive perspective, to really investigate, to be curious, to, do, to dig deep for the, for, for the facts, and also to battle for the future, to be interested enough to want to really expose or illuminate what the truth is? I think that the most important thing is to really build in a respect for evidence and to teach them to always ask, what's your evidence for that point of view or that statement? A lot of times, uh, especially over the last, you know, maybe 
generation or two, we've taught people to be uh, skeptical of claims of authority, but we really haven't taught them about that component of basing conclusions on evidence then, because it's, it's not enough to be skeptical of an authority. You have to consider really what is nature saying about this, or at least what is our best understanding of nature saying about this. And that requires a certain amount of humility as well, and a, and a certain setting aside of your ego to be willing to accept what the evidence seems to be suggesting. And when we're talking about evidence, you know, what I hear you also saying is that, you know, with that proof positive of a situation or a fact, we begin to um, gain control over ourselves, our world. We have a, a, a sense of autonomy with what's going on around us. If we just um, believe everything that we see, think, or hear, we might be in for a few surprises. That's right. Really what science and the idea of evidence does is it takes the claims of authority away from any one individual and it gives them to all of us. Any one of us then should be able to verify, say, how much rain has fallen in a rain bucket by sticking a ruler into it. No matter how wealthy they are, what their sexual orientation is, what their religion is, what their political party is, what their gender is, all of those identity aspects of who they are are independent from the objective measurement. And when we talk about evidence, science is creating more and more and more evidence that informs our public policy making decisions. And if we don't rely on that, what we're doing is we're giving power away to individuals who do not have an objective point of view and are inherently just advocating for what's best for them. When we talk about um, the rise of anti-science in news media, I think that there's something that we really need to talk about here, because uh, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago about the election, but it's 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 pervasive. It's everywhere. Where it's um, you know opinion over knowledge. It's a huge problem. It began developing in the 1980s uh, when, under the Reagan administration, the FCC abolished something called the Fairness Doctrine. Uh, and back then, that was an idea that if people were using the public airwaves um, to broadcast news uh, as a for-profit news company, they had an obligation to present both sides of controversial issues, but do it in a way that, at least in the judgment of the FCC and its board of advisors, was fair. Um, we have moved away from that in journalism, with the, and not just by abolishing that, but also with the advent of cable news and with the advent of the internet. And now journalists have been taught for a couple of generations that there's no such thing as objectivity, and that the best they can do is be fair and balanced. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, well, the problem with that is obviously um, there is such a thing as objectivity. And if you don't accept that there is objectivity, and you don't strive to question the powerful on behalf of the rest of us, what is the purpose of journalism in a democracy then? Yeah. Last night I had watched a video short on how Americans get their news. And 60% of Americans, according to this little video that I watched, get their news from social media. And because social media is moving so fast and furious, no one is, fa is fact-checking social media. And so of the, the, the news that we are getting 
how much of that is truth versus opinion. Right. There's a huge problem on the Internet with that because a, a large portion of that is not only not just, just opinion, but a lot of times it's uh, pure propaganda that's been designed by vested interests to skew public opinion in one direction or another that favors their point of view. And then there's a bigger problem in social media. You know, Facebook is now the largest news source uh, in the country. And people you know, on Facebook and in other social media tend to self-select. Uh, among their friends, they will pick friends that they agree with often because they don't want to be exposed to thoughts or ideas that they don't agree with. So we see a growing partisan split then through social media dissemination of news. We are going to jump off to a break, speaking of media, and then we'll come back and we'll carry on the conversation. I'm speaking with Sean Otto. His new book is The War on Science, Who's Waging It, Why It Matters, What We Can Do About It. To learn more, please visit www.seanotto.com. On Twitter, that handle is at Sean Otto, and on Facebook, Sean Lawrence Otto. We're going to go to a short break, but before we do, I want to talk with you about my happy feet. Yep. That's right. I am now wearing Bombas, the most comfortable premium socks on the planet. I have become a Bombas sock evangelist. Let me explain why. A few years ago, two cool guys quit their day jobs at a media company to make a difference in the world with socks. They learned that socks are the most requested items at homeless shelters. And at the same time, they realized there was a gap in the market for a more thoughtfully crafted sock. So these guys spent a couple of years on R&D, putting serious thought and intention into every single engineering detail to build a better performing sock. And ta-da, Bombas was born. Not only are they great quality socks, but Bombas is also on a mission to be better in helping to make the world a better place. For each pair of socks purchased, Bombas also donates a pair of socks to those in need. And that translates to more than 2 million pairs of socks given away so far. So if you need new socks, hop on over to bombas.com slash happiness because everyone deserves comfortable feet. Listeners of Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio will get an exclusive 20% discount off your first order, plus a money-back guarantee that Bombas are the best-performing socks in the history of feet. Again, that's bombas.com slash happiness. You can't go wrong and your feet will thank you. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on T-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org.
Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at harvestinghappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? Because it's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7. And we are talking about the truth and honesty and why it matters. My guest today is Sean Otto. He's here speaking about his new book, The War on Science, Who's Waging It, Why It Matters, and What We Can Do About It. Sean, prior to the break, we started talking about anti-science um, in the news and, and, and the lack of uh, perhaps fair and balanced, true accounting of what's going on in the news and objectivity. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So I'll give you a great example. Um, David Gregory, uh, who many people recognize the name, uh, during the run-up to the Iraq War was the NBC uh, White House uh, correspondent. And he was questioned after uh, we got into the war why the press corps didn't really uh, question President Bush uh, and the administration about the lack of credible evidence of any weapons of mass destruction before we committed troops away into Iraq. And he said, uh, there are people that will criticize us about that, but I respectfully disagree. It's not our role. But in a democracy, if it's not the press's role to question the powerful on an evidentiary grounds, demanding evidence, whose role is it? So this comes out of this idea that the press thinks that they should be balanced, which means that they will present both sides of an argument. Uh, but that becomes a problem if one side is supported by all the evidence that we've been able to develop, say in the case of science, where there's thousands of scientists talking about, say, climate change, for instance, and then the other side is somebody outside of science or that has a minority point of view that doesn't have very much support, and they treat them as if they're the same thing and that as if they have the same weight. And this is called false balance in reporting. Instead of going for evidence, because they don't believe in objectivity, these journalists just seek to balance the story, then wash their hands of it and think that their job is done. But what this does is it elevates extreme views and extreme partisanship, and it makes it much more difficult for us to govern ourselves with, as in the case of the war in Iraq, a multi-trillion dollar consequence. Well, when you talk about the war in Iraq, I mean, I think it was a it, it's a war really that's uh, was waged on three levels, right? I mean, it was playing to three levels of society. You know, you have the power, you have the the um, religious aspect, and I think that this is something that we really should talk about as well: is that the role that religious fundamentalism plays in the skewing of science and fact? Absolutely. Well, religious fundamentalists generally have been opposed to the ideas of evidence uh, when they come, uh, when they have something to say about origins, in particular human origins, or the origin of life, or uh, sexuality and reproduction. 
they always tend to center on things like evolution, sex, sex education, uh, questions about uh, birth control and control of the reproductive cycle. And generally, they develop uh, a lot of ideological arguments for why science is wrong. The problem is, is that this is really corrosive to our whole thought process and our ability to assess questions on evidence. And if we start teaching things like creationism or intelligent design in schools, or if we start going with uh, abstinence only or other faith-based faith -based, uh, uh, sex ed, uh, we erode students' ability to actually assess evidence and knowledge. Mm. I, I agree with you. I am the mother of um, two late teenagers, and I think that the the fostering of their inquiry and their deductive reasoning is key to their development as healthy, constructive, engaged adults. Absolutely, especially now when there's so much information coming at us from so many different angles, and knowledge is easily accessible uh, on the internet, as is disinformation, the most important thing we can be teaching students is how to think about these things. Yeah, how, how, how to think and how to challenge, how to challenge respectively. Right. Respectfully, rather. Exactly. And how to base your conclusions on evidence. When I was a kid, I was a part of the debate club. And debate club was very, very big in my school. And this is not something that I see um, so prevalent within the school systems today. I think it does exist in, in, in some communities. But it was vital to learn how to argue well. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that uh, in the war and science, I talk about different battle plans, different ways that we can turn this around before it's too late for Western democracy, before the science outstrips our ability to govern ourselves. And one of the things that I talk about is uh, how teachers can teach science civics and how they can use student science debates where students take a contentious uh, science issue like climate change or like evolution and uh, and debate it. Uh, but you don't. the trick is, is you don't tell the students which side they're going to debate until you flip a point on the day of. And that way, they have to investigate both the rhetorical argument and the evidence-based argument and they learn the difference between them. Love that. Uh, what, it's great. I, great fun and, and constructive, most definitely. Absolutely. And as a teacher, if you can tie science into students' lives, then they all of a sudden begin to understand the relevance of it. Last night, I sat down to do my um, write-in ballot for the presidential election. And I sat down with the anticipation, I live in California, so it's going to be a longer ballot than, than some of the other states, but I thought it was going to take me about 15 minutes. It ended up taking me a lot longer because I really we tried to read through everything and really understand the pros and the cons and who was really backing um, some of these measures. But I said to my son, I said, you should take all of this information to school with you, you know? Like bring it so people can actually see what a ballot looks like, what it, what 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 it is that we're doing here, what our what our democracy stands for, and what we have the power to change. I think that's a great idea. Another thing that people could do is they can go to a nonprofit that I helped start called ScienceDebate.org, where we actually got all four major party candidates. I don't have major candidates, I should say, like Hillary Clinton, Donald. Trump, Jill Stein, and Harry Johnson to answer the 20 top questions 
about science, and it's really revealing to see how they think when they answer those questions. Give that website again, because that's a great way to get educated. Yes, it's called sciencedebate.org, and you can go directly to that page by writing and typing in sciencedebate.org forward slash 20 answers. Love it. Um, in your book, you lay out a 14-point step battle plan to ensure that the world embraces the truths that science has has to offer. Talk a little bit about some of them. I mean, we may not get to all 14, but we can we can get a good running start here. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, one of them is supporting uh, the nonprofit sciencedebate.org, which is basically saying that, look, these issues of science, technology, engineering, health, and the environment are impacting voters' lives at least as much as the economic policy or the foreign policy or the faith and values issues that candidates often talk about in the campaign trail. And we really ought to be debating these things and getting candidates for president who often don't have any background in science to be thinking about these things ahead of time. So going on to science debate and signing on is one way to help push this forward. Mm. And, and, and the politicians should have science advisors. You mentioned this in the book, and I think this is really important because I, not all of them do. No, in fact, and if somebody is working in science, uh, one of the best things you can do is reach out to your member of Congress. It doesn't matter what political party they are. Ask them if they have a science advisor. Chances are about nine out of ten that they'll say, no, I don't. And if they say that, volunteer to be their science advisor and put together a team because no matter the party, if they're basing their conclusions and their thinking on evidence, we're all going to be better served. Agreed. What about preaching in the age of science? That's one of my favorite areas to talk about, because a lot of times you see science issues, like some of the ones that we've talked about today, becoming divided along political lines. And instead of going for those same old divides, pastors, preachers, priests could be keeping up on the latest science, because it really helps parishioners to parse this complex new information. Uh, as we make advances in our knowledge, we also have to refine our morals and ethics and codify that new knowledge into our political and legal system. And that's inherently an ethical discussion that is really well suited and exciting to happen in houses of moral and ethical reflection, our churches. Uh, so pastors and priests can really help that process along by focusing on those interesting, cutting-edge new discoveries instead of rehashing the same old political divides. You know, it makes me think of um, several years ago, the Dalai Lama came out uh, quite vociferously uh, about the need for us to embrace science, that, that spirituality and philosophy and science can all can and do live together. And I think this is really, really important. We must embrace um, science. We must embrace the, the, the facts, because this is how we're going to better humanity and the world. Absolutely. In fact, the scientific method that we use in the West, that we think of today as leading uh, the West, came out of Western religion. It came out of, uh, essentially, well, first it started in the Muslim world, and then it, it grew out into the Protestant world. Protestants at that point in time believed that there were two sources of revelation. One was the Bible, the book of Revelation, 
and the other was by studying nature to understand what God really intended, not what somebody wrote about nature. And that tradition gave us science, and by sticking with that, we can really do a better job of informing ourselves and developing policies that are fair, moral, and just. We are out of time, and I want to send our listeners over to your website, which is www.seanauto.com. His latest book is The War on Science, Who's Waging It, Why It Matters, What We Can Do About It. On Twitter, you can find Sean at Sean Otto, and on Facebook, Sean Lawrence Otto. I wish you the best of luck with this book because it really offers uh, a a compelling argument and a compelling plan to fix some of these um, blaring um, challenges that lay ahead for us. Thank you, Sean Otto, for being with us. Oh, thank you. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are carrying on the discussion about the war on science, challenging the political status quo with scientific knowledge. My next guest is doing just that. Professor Lawrence M. Krauss is director of the Origins Project at ASU and foundation professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration and the Physics Department at Arizona State University. He has won numerous international awards for both his research and his efforts to improve the public understanding of science, and is the only physicist to have received the top awards from all three U.S. Physics Society and the National Science Board's Public Welfare Award for contributions of public understanding of science in the United States. He is the author of over 300 publications and 10 books, including bestsellers, The Physics of Star Trek and A Universe from Nothing. He is a commentator, also uh, writes essays for numerous newspapers and magazines, including The New York Times, The New Yorker, and appears regularly on radio and television and has worked on several film projects. In addition, he is the executive producer and subject of The Unbelievers, a documentary film that discusses science and reason and stars in Werner Herzog's films, Salt and Fire, and Lo and Behold. This man is incredible. He is also the author of a book that is about to be published on March 21st, entitled The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, Why Are We Here? Professor Krauss, thanks for joining us. 
It's it's great to join you. I hope there's still time. <laughs> ah, yeah, well, listen, you've done a lot, and I and I'm I'm impressed, and I I, I appreciate you being here with us to uh, talk about your book. And when you talk about why are we here, what exactly do you mean? Well, you know, there are existential questions that all humans ask themselves, like, yeah, are we alone? Why are we here? On uh, how did the universe get created? Though my last book was sort of about how you can get a universe from nothing without any super shenan supernatural shenanigans. But really the question is sort of why do we see the stuff we see and what, you know, how did the universe evolve to be the way it is? And, and, um, and this, the recent book is really about this, what I, well, it is the greatest story ever told so far about the humanity at its best, the 2000 year journey that took us to understanding the, that the world we see is really just sort of a surface layer on a, on a much more interesting fabric underneath and in fact, our existence is kind of a cosmic accident. The universe wasn't designed for us, no matter how it might look like it is now. And uh, we are a fortunate accident, and we should enjoy that. So the, the bottom line of the answer why are we here is that there's no fundamental reason. But uh, that shouldn't bother us. In fact, it should make life more, pre more precious rather than less. I love what you just said. We are a fortunate accident. This is great. And you also it's said so something else that I think is terrific. The supernatural shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You don't need you know, you see a hundred, there are a hundred billion galaxies in the observable universe today, each containing a hundred billion stars. And the first thing you look at when you see all that, you say, well, how did all that get here? How was all that created? Surely you need something, some supernatural force to create all that from, from maybe nothing. And the amazing thing, and it truly is amazing, is that the laws of physics as we know it can, can allow you to do all of that from nothing without, without violating the laws of physics and therefore without requiring anything supernatural. I just think it is the fact that we can even have a plausible story for how the universe got here without invoking some magic is a tribute to the uh, 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 perseverance and ingenuity uh, of humans and the progress of science. The, the main thing about science that's so important is that we force our beliefs to conform to the evidence of reality rather than the other way around. And that's, of course, got political implications. We we have to accept the empirical evidence and work with that. And, and that's what's made science progress so far. And also what's holding politics back right now is people who want the world to be like they want it to be instead of the way it really is. Let's talk a little bit about that because you're bringing up a very good point about how uh, the, the crossroads of, of, of science and, and politics and how we are being held back. Talk a little bit about what's going on in the climate around us today. Well, speaking of climate around us today, what's going around, on is that right now, in fact, in fact uh, unfortunately, the current administration and the Republican Congress are the are the only major governmental groups in any major uh, industrialized country that simply don't accept the evidence of climate change and the human-induced climate change. They deny the science, and it, the science isn't controversial. Of course, you can always find someone who doesn't like it. You can... It, it, you can pick any topic you want. You can find a PhD who disagrees. You can find PhDs who say the earth is flat. But giving the public the perception that there's a controversy because you can find some denier is really misrepresenting the, the, the science. The great thing about science is, you know, journalists are often trained to say there's two sides to every story. But in science, one side is just usually wrong. And in this case, climate change is happening. And it is induced by humans. All the evidence shows that. And the predictions are agreeing with the observations. And we have a choice to just let it happen or increase the rate at which it's happening or to try and address it. And it's really unfortunate when government, which is really supposed to rely on evidence for good public policy, 
denies the evidence. Now, let me make it clear. I'm not saying that scientists should determine how we respond to climate change. What I'm saying is that government should rely on the evidence and use that evidence to make public policy. It's up to the public to vote for people and, uh, and, and for the governments to determine what the policy is. But the public has a right to know before they vote. And politicians should base their policies on reality. Instead of saying, we like this policy and we're going to fabricate or distort the evidence to make that policy happen. That, that is inappropriate. And that's, that's what we're seeing, in, certainly in the realm of climate change and, and, and in some sense in the, also in the realm of other environmental aspects, uh, environmental pollutants. Uh, but one is also worried that the same mentality of coming in and having the answers before you even ask the questions uh, is distorting the, the, the way this government is working. And, and I find it, it um, frustrating at best and terrifying at worst. I agree. And let's talk about how the knowledge upsets the status quo. I mean, really what we're talking about is about money, is what it comes down to. Yeah, I think, you know, if it's, it is interesting. If you look at the entire budget of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which really brings together thousands of working scientists who don't have any agenda, they just want to figure out what's happening. That entire budget is smaller than the amount of money spent by, say, the Koch brothers on uh, on 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 advertising and marketing and propaganda, if you want to call it that, to try and and uh, discredit the results of the scientists. What I like to tell the 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 public or people listening to this, you know, it may sound like people on either side of this are equally cogent, but you should ask yourself the question: Who has what something to gain from this? Is it people who have a lot of money invested in oil and gas exploration? Uh, do they have more to gain by saying the climate change isn't happening than a bunch of scientists who basically, who basically are just looking at the data and don't earn more money or less money, no matter what their conclusion is? Uh, and so when you think about it that way, I think you can realize that if you're trying in this world where we're presented with so much information and so much misinformation, we have to learn how to filter that. I've often said that the problem with education right now is that, you know, it's not just a bunch of facts. That's irrelevant. Facts are alternative facts. It doesn't matter. We need to, what we need to teach people how to do is to, is to learn how to determine the facts, how to get to the facts, not what the facts are. So work through the logical arguments and learn how to separate sense from nonsense. And that's what science is all about with its skepticism. And I think so you should be skeptical. You should be skeptical of me. You should be skeptical of what you hear and what you read and what politicians are saying, but you should have the tools to try and address that skepticism, to ask questions like, what does this person have to gain from, from saying this? Or does this statement disagree with something else I've, I know to be true about the world? And these kind of things are important because science is a process. It's not just a bunch of facts. It's a way of getting to uh, the truth underneath the, the illusion. And that's what I mean, in some sense, that's what my book is about, about the amazing story of how we've been able to do that over 400 years. But it also was important in applying to the to the rest of the world, how to how to abstract out what's really happening. And we certainly need that in a, in a world, as I say, full of misinformation. Well, and I think the, the teaching people how to critically think, I mean, it's it's it, it, you get the data, but then it's thinking about how does this work? for yourself, for the greater good. And this is where I think it gets a little fuzzy right now. Well, you yeah, have a government. The, yeah, well, the words, you know, I, I think critically is, is one way of putting it. I worry about those words because they're emotionally laden right now because a lot of people, for instance, creationists, you like to say, well, we should not teach evolution in, the, in, in, in 
we should teach critical thinking. And it sounds good, but, but you know, we, when it comes to critical thinking, there's a process, the process of looking at the evidence, asking questions, making predictions, testing that, that, uh, th those predictions against evidence. That's the process by which we encourage critical thinking. And we encourage ourselves to question ourselves and our, and only our own results. The physicist Richard Feynman once said, when we have a theory, we, we try and prove it true, but we try just as hard to prove it false. And so it's not just like any critical thinking works. It's not like, as the old publisher of the New York Times used to say, I like to keep an open mind, but not so open that my brains fall out. <laughs> Very well said. Um, I want to uh, ask you one question. We're going to go to a break, but I can ask the question before we do. How have the revolutions in physics in the 20th century changed our perspective of the universe of our experience. And I, I, I'm paying particular attention to how it's worded, the universe of our experience. Well, it's told us that what we see is not all that there is. And moreover, that um, certain key facets of what we see really aren't reflected in the underlying reality, not just the discovery of quantum mechanics in the early part of the century, which told the 20th century, which told us that on fundamental scales, uh, electrons are doing many things at the same time and virtual particles are popping in and out of existence. But the fact that really things we take for granted, like the mass of the particles that make us up and the stars and galaxies and planets is actually an accident because in the earliest moments of the Big Bang explosion, some field froze in place and certain particles, as they move along, get resistance from that field. It's called the Higgs field. It's like swimming in molasses. If you swim in molasses versus swimming in water, you'll feel a lot heavier. Well, it turns out the particles that make us up at some fundamental scale are really massless. But because of this field, they experience resistance. And if it weren't for that resistance in that field, there would be no massive particles. There would be no people, no planets, no galaxies. And so uh, what we've really discovered is, is like we're like people living on an icicle on a window and, and imagining that the world is just like it is in that icicle. Uh, but in fact, the real world outside of it is quite could be quite different. And it's just, it's amazing that we sitting here on this small planet in this remote place have, using the progress of science, have been able to recognize these facets about the universe. I, I find it truly remarkable. In fact, of course, I find it the greatest story ever told so far. Perfectly said. We're going to need to take a break, and we will come back, and I'm going to ask you more about Higgs Field. But to learn more about Professor Lawrence M. Krauss and his new book, The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, Why Are We Here?, which will be released on March 21st, please visit him at kraus.faculty.asu.edu slash. On Twitter, you can find him probably more quickly at L. Kraus with the number one. And on Facebook, Lawrence M. Kraus. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org.
Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We're continuing the conversation with Professor Lawrence M. Krauss, author of The Greatest Story Ever Told So Far, Why Are We Here?, which is going to be released any minute on March 21st. So, Professor Krauss, let's talk about Higgs Field. Why should we care about it? You mentioned it a little bit um, prior to going to break, but I want to get into this a little bit more deeply. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, it sounds when we talk about discovering these esoteric particles of the Large Hadron Collider that this is all nice, but what does it really have to do with us? And and the answer is it explains why we're here. And at some le- level, you know, science is a cultural activity. Uh, in some sense, it suffers because it also produces technological uh, benefits. And therefore, uh, we when we look at science, we say, well, what good is this? It's going to make a better toaster or a faster car. We never ask that when we're talking about, say, a Mozart symphony or a Picasso painting. But what science does is it changes our perspective of our place in the universe, just like good art, music, and literature. And the Higgs field, uh, discovering that existence, tells us, has told us about not just about the fundamental properties of matter and produced truly the greatest scientific theories we ever have produced that explain everything we see, but they've told us about how the universe evolved so that we could get here, which really, as I said even at the beginning of our interview, is one of the fundamental questions that people ask. People, we all ask those questions. We look up at the night sky and say, how did it happen? Are we alone? All of those kind of questions. We're all innate scientists at some level. We, most of us get it beaten out of us in school. But in fact, asking these foundational questions and adding some insight to it is really what makes the human drama worth living. And so the Higgs field, well, the discovery of the Higgs field or the creation of Higgs particles is not going to make a better closer. It's true that the technology we've used to discover it, building the Large Hadron Collider and such, has produced great spin-offs, including faster computers, and in fact, indeed, the World Wide Web was created at the, at, at the facility that created the Large Hadron Collider by physicists trying to talk to each other. So the internet, which we're using to, in fact, to communicate right now, is, was, was developed as a result of this scientific search. So the spin-offs are great. But we shouldn't justify the science just by the spin-offs. The knowledge about our own origins, which is really, as I say, I think what many people are interested in, is, is fundamental and I think in some sense priceless. I mean, I run this institute called the Origins Project because I think origins questions are really at the heart of the forefront of every fun, fundamental question in science today. And discovering the Higgs field, which was really a, an idea, a vague idea, that, and I talk about in the book how how it was sort of physicists were dragged kicking and screaming to get there. It could have, the whole house of cards of modern physics could have fallen apart if we didn't discover this. And that's great because if you're a scientist, being proved wrong is as interesting as being proved right because it means there's more to learn. And I'm as astounded as anyone, perhaps, that this incredible standard model that we developed is actually right. And it, it, is, it is, as I say, a triumph of the human intellect. So I just think it's a beautiful story about how humans can come together. And the Large Hadron Collider itself is like the Gothic cathedral of the 21st century. It, you know, it, 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 over 10,000 physicists brought up from hundreds of different countries speaking 
dozens of different languages and different religions all come together for this single purpose to understand why we're here. It's And the machine itself is just amazing. Every second at the Large Hadron Collider, more information is being generated than in all the books, in all the libraries in the world. And how we get through, siphoned through that information, it's just an amazing, as I say, I think it's a testament to what the, the best about what it means to be human, as opposed to the unfortunate things we're observing in the world today, which sometimes I think represent the worst about what it means to be human. I, I agree. And th this idea that, that we all want to know our origins, you know, and I, I, it leaves me speechless, really, what, what, what you're sharing, because I, I look at the world, I look at our political climate today, I look at, at the earth that our kids are going to inherit and their children are going to inherit, and I think, okay, yeah, it's humanity at its best and it's humanity at its worst. What are these lessons that we can learn from from these scientific discoveries? Well, I think one is to, to be skeptical of what you see. The other is to ask questions and to think about how to answer those questions, to, to be willing to say, I don't know, is a really important thing for parents to talk to their kids about. Instead of, you know, we always try to pretend we know everything. When the kid asks questions, say, I don't know, but let's let's figure out how to find out. To, to understand that the way to find out is to look at a lot of claims and look at evidence and then compare it with the predictions and see what's really what really works. The same is true for the politicians. When they claim something, look out and try and find evidence to see if it's if it's substantiated. If it isn't, you should be suspicious. And uh, and and ultimately, as I say, be skeptical of yourself because we all want to believe certain things and we're, we're sort of hardwired in different ways to want to believe things and we should recognize just because we want to believe something it may not be true oh I, indeed there's a there's a i like a quote from a famous uh, science fiction writer philip k dick who said reality is that which continues to exist even when you stop believing in it and i think that's probably a good good lesson I think so. And let's go back to climate change for a minute. And uh, I am aware that the um, government's website took down its page on climate change. And I, I, I don't know what to say about that. Well, you know, look, it is worrisome. Uh, but I, I wouldn't get I, I wouldn't get paranoid about it yet. Um, I mean, of course, now with the new with the new head of the EPA, I, I might begin to worry more. But new administrations tend to often, uh, when they come in, to re-examine the, the, the information that's out there to try and make sure that they have some handle and to some extent some control on what's coming out of the White House. And so it's new. It's not surprising for all administrations to look through the material that's pre-existing on old on the government website in the past administration, decide if they want to reframe reframe it. What is of some worry by climate scientists, and I think this is this is worth elaborating on, is, is the fact that there's a lot of data and there's a lot of information that they've presented, the scientists presented. They don't want it lost. They don't want that data lost. But again, I'm, I'm not as worried because once it's out there on the Internet, it's pretty hard to to take it away from it. You know, you can, there's lots of places to find it stored. Uh, I would be more worried if the government, after a little while of, of reconfiguring their site, produced a site that said manifestly incorrect things about the world, like the fact that there's that, as they might say, that it, it's controversial that humans are, that climate change is happening or that humans are inducing it. If one starts to see out on government websites recognizable lies and distortions, then we should worry. But for the moment, I, I, I at least like to give them a breather and say, well, let's see what, what information they're going to produce. 
but they should not remove the material that the scientists are producing. And I think that's for me the the real sadness of this is not just that they're censoring scientists, which they were early on. I'm hoping that stops. They claim they're going to stop censoring government scientists from reporting on their data. But the fact that this at this atmosphere discourages the scientists who would otherwise be working for the government to provide the best possible information for them to make policy on. And they're going to leave. They're going to leave the public sector and go into the private sector or do something else. And that'll be a loss for, for, for everyone and loss to the public as a whole. Because once again, if the public can't rely on experts, if the, and if the, if the government can't rely on experts, then we all suffer. Right now, unfortunately, we're seeing an administration with, led by someone who has never been interested in relying on experts. And one hopes, one hopes that over time, the importance of doing that will be, will be impressed upon um, that individual. Uh, I, I agree. And I, going back to recognizable lies and distortions, I mean, to say that climate change doesn't exist, it, it is um, ignorant because you, it's cause and effect. We can't be here living on Earth um, producing waste and, and everything else that we do and not have an impact. It just well, doesn't make sense. We can, we can predict it. It's not just that we have an impact. People say, well, yeah, but we're small compared to the rest of the environment. We can quantify this. The physics is simple. It's straightforward. Carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. We can calculate its effect on the power received from the sun and the power radiated into space. This is simple, basic physics. It's not, it's not some imaginary or some difficult calculation to do. Now, the specific implications of how that increased heat stored in the Earth will go into changing the climate is a more complicated question, which needs numerical modeling, which we can then compare to experiment. But the point is the fundamental physics is... Simp is, is basic and straightforward. And the data is compelling. The, da the sea level is rising as predicted. The carbon, the acidity of the oceans are, is, is increasing as predicted. And indeed, the temperature of the, of, of the earth is going up and in, in unprecedented ways. And by unprecedented, I mean, we can look at these things over the last, in some sense, 500,000 years by looking at ice cores from Antarctica. And we can see that the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere is not is is almost double that of what it's been in the last five hundred thousand years. This doesn't happen, and not only it doesn't hasn't happened naturally, but it's also exactly the level that's predicted by human industrial activity. So that it's not some mysterious black box. It's simple, basic physics that tells us to expect this to be happening. And for it not to be happening, you'd have to come up with a very sophisticated explanation, which is not to say what the deniers say, which is, oh, government scientists are lying or they're liberal, they're Democrats or liberals, and we shouldn't believe what they're doing. It's not the case. They're trying to buy, they're, they're doing their job, trying to do the best job they can do. And it's unfortunate when they come up with, with information and people, because of their a priori biases, refuse to listen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Professor Lawrence M. Krauss, thanks for joining us today on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Once again, the book is The Greatest story ever told so far why are we here to be released on march 21st 2017 to learn more about dr kraus uh, professor kraus edit that out karina professor kraus please visit uh http colon double backslash kraus dot faculty dot asu dot edu backslash and you can find him on twitter at l kraus with the number one and on facebook the page is lawrence m Kraus. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. It will never invite you to the party. 
Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Sean Otto and Professor Lawrence M. Krauss, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet and KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on TogiNet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.